Jesus came to save a diverse people. And through his blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation. Now hear the word of the Lord. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Jonah. Welcome. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, Real quick, you'll notice in your app, um, we've, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, amen. Crazy couple, nine months, I guess. But, uh, you know, with, the protests and the violence and everything happening in Louisville. Um, obviously, we talked about these issues in our city over the last series that we did. Um, but in, in an effort to try to equip our church towards next steps, the uh, the lead pastors at all the Sojourn Collective churches, we've put together a prayer guide, which is just to take the next 14 days and what will it look like to pray for these issues and for our city over the next 14 days. Uh, it's There it is. Yep, that's not what it looks like. That's a link to the Internet. Um, so you can find the prayer guide there. It's also in the app if you tap on the media tab. And uh, it's 
It's intended, no matter what side of the issue you're on, um, what side, what perspective you have of what's going on, uh, I think there's room for it to stretch all of us in there. And it's trying to let God's word reshape us and lead us to pray for people, even those who think differently than we do. So I really encourage you to take some time and pray through that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's totally free. And again, it's on your app. If you tap the media tab, it'll be right at the top above sermon audio. It says 14 day prayer guide. Uh, so that's that. And I hope you take advantage of it and pray for our city. Uh, last week, we talked about marriages, being married. Um, and we released our position on what marriage is for and when divorce is permissible. Uh, anyone want to guess what the number one cause of marital stress in the United States is? Number one thing that... Cre- oh, he's got it in the back. <laughs> That's from reading, right? Not experience. That's from reading studies, not marital experience. Yeah, the number, the number one cause of stress in marriage relationships in the United States is cash money. It's money. Um, as of 2013, which these studies come out every so often, this is from the Institute of Divorce, which sounds like a great place to work. Uh, they did a study, and um, money is the number three cited reason for divorce in the United States, the third leading cause of divorce. Uh, last week, we talked about wanting healthy marriages and what that might require of us and, and look like. And at least in the United States, if you want to have a healthy marriage, you have to have healthy finances, too. You can't want a healthy marriage without wanting healthy finances. Um, The two go together. Uh, We talked about the necessity of healed hearts for healthy marriages last week, and it makes perfect sense that Jesus' lesson on marriage would then be followed by a lesson on money, too. And how does money have the power to heal our hearts and help steer our lives? But even beyond beyond marriage, to be if if to be fully alive as God's image bears. If we desire that, we have to bring our finances under the authority of God as well. And the story before us, in, in essence, will lay out two financial pathways for us. One path is defined by the desire to have and have more. Some people have, I've heard it before described that the American temptation is thinking that more of what we've already got is what we need. So if we just could get more, if we could have more, have more, have more, then life will be as we think it should be. And that way, life becomes a pursuit of possessions. And the sad fruit of that path is that eventually you won't have anything, but rather what you have will have you. Have you ever felt that experience before where your possessions actually possessed you? And usually that what, what happens uh, late, late December, early January, they're trying, the car dealership's trying to clear out their, their hot new old models. We get the old models out, you see it, and they've got the red one there, and you know it's a new car, and it's 87-month financing at 37% interest or whatever the crazy cars we buy right now, and you have that emotional buy, and then six months down the road, you feel like this car payment is controlling your whole life. So you wanted to have something, and that possession ended up possessing you. That's one path. Have more, but eventually your stuff the things you supposedly own will actually own you. You will be possessed by your possessions. The other pathway is an invitation to freedom that admittedly will require a different kind of pain. But the pathway towards freedom is where we hold what we have with open hands, knowing that our lives are not built by the accumulation of possessions, but rather in deep relationships and significant mission. In essence, Uh, Jesus is teaching us this morning that you can have stuff and become a slave, 
or you can have Jesus and be set free. The answer here is somewhat obvious, if you have any sense. Would you rather be a slave or would you rather be free? Most people would say, I would rather be free. Who chooses slavery when freedom is an option? Uh, But as we'll see, it isn't that easy for any of us. So the passage begins in verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's some pretty significant money lessons that we're going to go through here, and this is our our first one. Um, First money lesson of the day. We have to follow Jesus as Lord, not as teacher. So in in the Gospel of Matthew, there's little clues in the text all along that Matthew helps us recognize things like good guys and bad guys. Like when, when the, the Empire music plays in Star Wars, you know a bad guy is about to come on the scene. When Matthew has somebody calling Jesus a teacher, it's not a good sign. Uh, that is someone who lacks seriousness. That's someone who lacks sincerity. So we're clued in here that this isn't going to go well for this man um, because he calls... Jesus a teacher. Well, what's the big deal? Uh, Y'all, we're talking about money. You you guys know Dave Ramsey, right? You've heard that name. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. (laughs) So Dave Ramsey is a great teacher. He's a great teacher. He's helped millions of people get out of debt and have a healthier grasp on their finances. Uh, His plan doesn't work for everyone. And once you get some financial sense about you or your legs under you a little bit, you get some headway in your own personal finances, you start doing things like well, I understand why Dave Ramsey says that, but I think I will do this instead. He's, his teaching there doesn't really apply to me, so I don't need to do this. You know, the loan money right now is at 2.8%, and if I can get 11% in the market, I won't pay off, and I'll take this, and I'll, I'll do that, and you work your system kind of a thing. With, if Dave Ramsey, as great of a teacher as he is, and as much success as he's had with finances, it's okay to take what you like from Dave and take what you like from somebody else. Dave doesn't become the sole authority on money, on finances. In other words, Dave Ramsey is not Jesus. A wise person can learn from Dave Ramsey and leave what they don't agree with and find wisdom in other places. But if you come to Jesus as a teacher, you'll end up doing the same thing. This is the way we treat all of our teachers. What do you do when you have a a quote-unquote bad teacher in college? Well, take what you can, learn what you can, and supplement it with somebody else. If you come to Jesus as a teacher, you'll take what you like from him, and you'll leave what you don't. This is the posture that we see here in this man, coming to Jesus as a teacher. One of the worst things you can call Jesus is just a good moral teacher. So he comes to this man and says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The the word have is repeated multiple times in this passage. It's kind of like the kick drum of this story. And I think Matthew's cluing us into some of what's going on in this guy's heart, that, that drive to have and to have and to have more. He wants to acquire eternal life as his latest possession is the newest thing to put on the shelf. The, the hot new teacher is in town, and he wants something that, or he has something that I want. He thinks he has a doing problem. Did you notice that? What must I do to have eternal life? But Jesus reveals he has a being problem, something about who you are and, and how you are, not just the things that you do. We look at Eternity as a possession we can earn or something to have. This is a distorted, twisted heart. If I had better information, I would do better and get what I want. 
Have you noticed that temptation before in your life? If I just knew the right answer, if I could just read the newest book, if I just knew the new bit of information, I would do better. And so this man comes to Jesus and says, tell me the things I need to know so that I can do better. That's not the invitation of Christ. His is an invitation to a renovation of being, not just of doing. You don't say to a Lord, give me what I want. You say to a Lord, tell me where to go. Jesus discerns this man's heart, and look what he says in verse 17. Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. So the first part of this, Jesus is rebuking the man for calling him a teacher. He's saying, listen, don't call me good unless you're willing to call me God. There's only one person that's truly good, and that is God. So don't call me good or ask me about what is good unless you're willing to also call me God. So that's the first bit of misunderstanding. I'm not a teacher. Second, eternal life is a gift, not a wage. It's not something you can just earn your way into. So he gives this man an impossible task. Be perfect. Obey the commandments. And the guy says, well, which ones? And Jesus essentially summarizes the Ten Commandments. And hilariously, the guy says, I've already done that. <laughs> Shows a little bit of the self-delusion going on in this guy. What do I have to do to, be, to gain eternal life? Well, I'll just be perfect for the rest of your life. I'm already on track. I'm already doing it. Is there anything else you'd have me do? Jesus' response gets to the second great lesson of this passage. We have to desire Jesus more than all else. Verse 21, Jesus tells him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then, come, follow me. This is an uncomfortable passage for lots of reasons. Um, maybe most superficially, I think most of us would agree that selling everything you have and giving it to the poor is not a requirement for eternal salvation. Right? Right. Thank you, front row Glenda. Um, So is Jesus lying? Is Jesus an accidental heretic here? Is he teaching? Has Jesus abandoned the gospel? You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You guys remember who Nicodemus was? The the elderly, fancy priest. What does he tell Nicodemus he's got to do to get eternal life? Somebody say it. You must be born again. What did Nicodemus love? Somebody had been at the height of the religious elite, in charge of society. He had his robes and the, the respect of all of the people. What might Nicodemus have loved in his position? You think it might be fair to think he, he might have enjoyed his status, his prestige, his position. And Jesus says to that man, hey, Nikki, if you want to get in, you have to be like a little baby. You guys remember what it's like to be a baby? Probably don't. I don't remember. I know what it is like when my kids were babies. And it sounds relatively embarrassing at times. The things that people have to do for you, um, you're incredibly dependent, profoundly needy. People like babies, but they don't necessarily roll out the red carpet for babies. You see, Jesus' invitation to Nicodemus 
is that if you want to come into my kingdom, you have to lay down the very thing that you love, your position and your status, and you have to be like those who have no position and no status. So, to the rich young man here, listen to what he says to Jesus, or the response he has to Jesus. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. This man saw Jesus as a teacher, not as a Lord. He saw Jesus as a way to get what he desired. What did this man love? Well, he neglected the teachings of the Lord because he had many possessions, and he walked away sad. He loved his money. He loved his possessions. But look what happened to him. His possessions possessed him. His possessions kept him from receiving the greatest gift, the greatest treasure imaginable, eternal life with God. He could not let them go. He did not own them. They owned him. Jesus is revealing the problem with this man's being, his soul. You're living right, are you? You're so good. You're so moral. Then leave the treasure of your heart for my sake. Leave the treasure of your heart for my sake. He's saying to this man the same thing that he said to Nicodemus. And I think it's fascinating that we have born-again Christians, but we don't have sell-all-you-have Christians. That's just something to go think about and speculate, why that one phrase rose to prominence and the other didn't. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He knows what's in this man's heart. He knows where his trust is, where his faith is. And Jesus is not indicting this man out of anger. He's inviting this man out of slavery. This man is so consumed by his having that he feels like he never has enough. He's sitting on an ocean of salt water wondering why he's still thirsty. Tragically unwilling to give his affections to Jesus and let go of the things that he loves, he walks away sad. You cannot do your way into eternal life. Jesus will not be another possession for you to park in your garage. You cannot learn your way into eternal life. You can only receive the gift from the Lord, Jesus. And and Jesus emphasizes this with the ridiculous image of a camel and a needle's eye. I'm 94% sure Jesus is making a joke here. I think Jesus was funny and interesting and all these kinds of things. And so he says, listen, you know what this is like, what this man is trying to do to do your way into eternal life, to rest your soul on your possessions? It's like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. And if you, got, if you have no concept of space or size dynamics, that's not possible. A camel is huge, and an eye of a needle is very, very, very small. It's hard to get a piece of thread through it. Jesus is saying, it's easier to make that impossible situation work than to get someone who does not desire me into heaven. Someone who's unwilling to give me their love. Jesus is a Lord of love, and he knows that when the foundations of our hearts are built on something other than him, it will inevitably bring destruction and sadness into our lives. If we build our lives on anything other than him, at some point it will bring destruction and sadness into our lives. He loves us too much to allow us to set our hopes on lesser loves. Some of you are nervous because you've got a lot of money right now. 
And I just want you to know, Jesus is not anti-rich. He's anti-money worship. He's against the money God. Humans were not built that way. And living that way will not end well for us, which leads us to the final lesson of the story. If you love Jesus, you'll pursue eternal riches. It's funny, Jesus doesn't say stop wanting money or stop desiring riches or something like that. He shifts the focus of what you should be after. In some ways, he sets the sights higher than just having as many possessions as the rich young ruler did. Uh, I love Peter. He really struggles with this interaction. And, you know, Jesus gives this teaching about money and Peter blurts out, well, how can anybody be saved then? Which probably reveals something about Peter's heart, what's going on. Jesus tells him God will make a way. Nothing is impossible for God. And listen to the stunning promise he gives his followers after that. Everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many are who the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. In the coming weeks, we'll consider Jesus' invitation to downward mobility, taking a posture of leastness, lowliness, if you want to be great. And he acknowledges all of these things that we could love, family, children, property. And he's saying, if you pursue the path of downward mobility there, you will be blessed beyond what you can imagine in the life to come. True riches are waiting for you, but you don't get them the same way that you get earthly ones. Jesus, you're going to hear it you're going to hear it like a kick drum over and over and over over the next few weeks as we get into Matthew 22. Jesus will often reverse what feels normal to us, which is his gentle way of saying what feels normal to you is not normal. If you want to receive a hundredfold return on your investment, what would you do to get a 100% return on an investment right now? If the market was performing at a 100% return, you would sell all you have and throw it in your... 401k. You throw it in a mutual fund. If you want a hundred return on your investment, Jesus says we'll start giving that stuff away. If you want to save your life, anybody remember what he says? Anyone who wants to save his life must lose it. If you want to be great, he says here, become like the least. On and on. Jesus is showing us the healing power of money The way to experience freedom is through one simple Christian word, the virtue of generosity. Generosity heals the soul by helping us experience the reality that we are saved, provided for, led by a good father, and we have unimaginable riches waiting for us. Generosity moves us to keep our eyes on our heavenly prize, never clinging too tightly to what we have now. Whatever it is, we can look at it and say, it's just a this. It's just a house. It's just a car. It's just a watch. Whatever the things are that you tend to cling to, generosity helps us experience the reality that Jesus is our greatest treasure. I'm guessing most of you, if we did a theology quiz at the beginning of the service and said, what is your greatest treasure? Or as the Westminster Confession would say, what is your only hope in life and death? And we would say something flowery about Jesus. We know that's true, but do you experience that? 
as true? Do you desire that in the same way you desire the new shiny thing? Generosity helps us to experience him as he is. We will not pursue the world's way of more and more possessions because we know those possessions will only end up possessing us. We will enlist what we have in the cause of Christ. So those, I'm just going to fire them at you again real quick. The three big lessons in this passage, we must follow Jesus as Lord, not as teacher. Second, we have to desire Jesus more than all else. Third, if you love Jesus, you will pursue eternal riches. Go learn what this means. You can run with those lessons and think about how do they apply in your life and how you're living now. And as we close, I want to talk specifically to those who are struggling with generosity right now. Some people have it figured out and they're living uh, free lives as a result of it. You know what I mean? Light, open-handed, tender-hearted. So first, I... Don't raise your hand now. This isn't intended to be church shaming time. Uh, I want to talk to those who give nothing. And I don't just mean to the church. I mean, you don't give any of your money away. You don't enlist any of your possessions in the building of the kingdom of God. Um, That could include to the church, but I'm just saying as a life principle, you don't give. Generosity is not something that you or your family do. So you know who you are. Uh, first thing I want you to ask and try to be very, very honest with yourself, how is that working for you? How are your clenched fists affecting your soul? How are you sleeping at night? Maybe, maybe you believe the lie that if you had more, you would give more. Or once the next promotion comes or the next raise comes, uh, I suppose that's theoretically possible. I just want you to know I've been working at a church for 15 years or so, something like, I don't know, more than a decade, and that's never been true. I've never seen that happen. Maybe you'll be the exception, you know? Usually what happens when people make more money and they're not giving, they just keep more money Or they just spend more money on stuff that they finally wish that they could have. If you had more, you'd probably just keep more. And then you would just feel guilty more. And enslaved by your stuff more. Don't raise your hand now. But y'all ever felt the conviction when you have to move? You see all the stuff? But yeah, I remember one time, this is one of the most convicting things I've ever heard in church. Pastor Travis, sorry, buddy, this isn't in the notes. It's off, but I'm gonna, I'm going to point people to your godliness now. He said one time he went through his house and they agreed to give away everything they hadn't touched. And was it a year or 18 months? A year. If we haven't touched it in a year, we're giving it away. And the weight of conviction that rolled over me there. How is it working for you to not give anything? So if that's you. I think the, the application of today's passage for you is to start giving something. It could be something small. And listen, give it wherever you want. If you've got weird church baggage and you're like, oh, the church just wants my money. I don't want your money. So if, that's, if you're weird about that, don't, don't give it here. I frankly don't care. Um, 
What I care about is the souls of Christians being generous and tenderhearted and following Jesus, even when he's talking about money. Uh, maybe you grew up in a family that didn't teach you about money. You're in, a, you're in a family now that handles money very well and takes it very seriously. Uh, and if you need help, we have a personal finance plan. I don't, do we have a picture of that or something? Yeah. Again, it's in your app. There's uh, hard copies of out there. I don't know if we're giving it away. Is it at the welcome table? And it'll just walk you through the biblical principles of money, how to do things like set a budget and save. And it'll give you, if you're young and you've never talked about money or thought about money, I would plead with you to pick that up now. Um, We've got coaches in our church that would love to help you. So hear me clearly. If you give nothing, no one is mad at you. You're not in trouble, but we're concerned about you. Refusing to give puts you at risk to be owned by your stuff and miss out on the joy of experiencing your Father's care. If Jesus is Lord to you, start giving today. Find something, find somewhere today. To those who only give occasionally, I want you to know that those who love Jesus pursue generosity in response to God's generosity to them. And it has little to do with the worthiness of the recipient. I'm going to say that one more time more slowly. Christian generosity rarely has to do with the worthiness of the recipient. Do you, do you see the command to almost reckless generosity from Jesus here? He doesn't say, sell all you have and give it to those who are really working hard to make a better life for themselves. Sell all you have and give it to the worthy poor. There are categories in the scriptures of the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. And it may be helpful for you to go consider those and look at that. But, you know, it reminds me somewhat of the parable of the sower, where the guy just has so much potent seed and he's just, he's throwing it on rocks and throwing it in streets and throwing it in bushes and throwing it in good soil. Sell all you have and give it to poor people. The posture is approaching reckless generosity. And I don't know what to tell you about that. I just see it in there in the scriptures, and and I don't, it makes me uncomfortable. But as I've reflected on this kind of wild generosity, it seems to me that giving this way draws us near to the heart of God. And I believe that will heal our hearts. Giving now and then, or giving only when you think the cause or the place is worth it, that may have superficial benefits that may affect the way people view you or your reputation, but I, I do not think that will change or transform your soul. If your giving is not affecting your lifestyle, that's not generosity. That may not mean that you're in trouble or bad or that the money given can't be celebrated. That's a good, that's a good thing. Or you, but if your giving is not affecting your lifestyle, it means you're missing out on the healing power of money. Generosity is one of the core Christian virtues that lead to the transformation of the soul. If you want to experience the freeing power of Jesus and store up those eternal treasures, give generously and consistently. Generously and consistently. Make a plan for it and run with it. Not every now and again, not when something goes your way, not when you find something that you're really moved by. The last group I want to talk to is those who are anxious about money. Let the anxious say amen. Amen. Just me. 
Once again, I'm preaching to myself up here. Uh, To those of us who feel what the rich young ruler likely felt, which is that fear of losing it. The fear of what if I lose it? What will this cost me? In my notes, I say most of the room understands. By that lackluster amen, I'm not sure the rest of the room understands. I want you to know I understand. I feel that, what will this cost me? What will I lose? Um, And most of all, I think the Lord understands. The only way we can give up something of value is if we find something of greater value. The only way we can lay down something that we love is when we find something or someone that we love more. We we must resist the temptation to see Jesus as a good teacher. If he's only a teacher to you, you will not follow him places that cost you. We must have faith to see Jesus as Lord. And the scriptures teach us that the reason we can love God at all is because he loved us first. And we know that Jesus came and practiced what he preached. God Almighty gave up his riches, his throne, to be a baby, to live a humble life. You think, you think being born again might cost Nicodemus something? What do you think it cost the creator God of the universe? And he came to live a humble life, to seek and save the lost, though it meant homelessness and poverty. He died a criminal's death, and he bore the weight of sins he did not commit. You have evidence that God loves you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're anxious about money, I want to ask you, do you see Jesus and his sacrificial love for you as beautiful? Do you see what the king has done for you? Are you willing to believe that his presence is more satisfying than your stuff? Are you willing to believe that if God would give you his son, that he will take care of you here and now too? If you are here and you are anxious about money, bring your money under the lordship of Jesus. Follow him, give, trust, and rest knowing your good God will care for you. Jesus frees us from what we have so we can have him instead. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.